I have uh, Okay, good. Orange and green are awfully close in my world. <laughs> so if there's any movement at all between orange and green, it tends to go from one to the other and back again. So I just remember where the stoplights are because I know what's on top and what's on bottom. <laughs> but it's wonderful to see all of you. We can start all over again. It's wonderful to see all of you and to see new faces and make new friends and behold the glorious works of God here in your presence and in your midst. We're living in a wonderful day. As Pastor Jonathan said, we're living in a day where we can behold him face to face. We can see his glory and be changed into that glory. It's a dangerous thing to look and not move. It's a dangerous thing to see and to treat the revelation frivolously. Oh, come on, sir. Come on, come on. Because when we're frivolous with it and we think it's our right, we're entitled to just behold that glory. When we move away from it, we go back out of our presence-oriented experience with God and we go back to work, we go next door to McDonald's, wherever we go. If we haven't been changed and we don't uphold that change, we don't guard that change in our heart and in our minds, then the next time we come back, we're callous, indifferent. But eventually, there's a horrible, horrible responsibility that comes with revelation knowledge. And that is, if you don't live up to it, you lose it entirely, you go blinded to it, and you just become dead on the inside. So, it's always a great thing, together with the saints of God, and whether the revelation is profound, whether it's just renewal and, and encouragement, it always has as its goal to reach deeper into our hearts and souls and enlarge our capacity to both know Him, to love Him, and to pass that love on to not just those in the body with us, but those that we encounter out in the world. So it's, it's a great thing to come to church. This is, this, is, this is more important than showing up for work. This is more important than going to a family meeting, and family meetings are important. You know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, those are, those are big deals. And we have a lot of fun when we do this, but this is, this is centered around potentially the most impacting, the most influential time of your life when the Word of God can reach into your heart, might be made alive by the Spirit, and change who you are for all eternity. We cannot treat church frivolously. I've been thinking a lot lately about, uh, about the importance of the love of God. I'm going to talk to you about the love of God. Uh, and I know, oddly enough, I've probably said this to you, the love of God is one of the hardest things there is to preach on. I don't know why, well, I do know exactly why it is. I don't know why it should be. Why it is, is because it tends to make people feel like they're not living up to something, or it maybe, maybe makes them feel like they haven't received everything they're supposed to have, or perhaps makes them feel guilty about their humanity. You should relax and remember that God appreciates and even values your humanity in some aspects because, because He saved you when you were lost. He's not going to discount you or discard you just because you act like a human being from time to time. It doesn't offend him. Right. It doesn't offend him, particularly if you circle back around 
and come in with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God and try to get up tomorrow. Tomorrow is a gift. It's a brand new day. It's a brand new unwrapped present to rise up and be somebody different tomorrow than you're going to be today. So I've been thinking about the love of God, and I want you to look in your Bible over to John chapter 13. We'll try and identify it and maybe break it down a little bit. But uh, for now, we will trust Jesus as a group to speak to us and say what he wants to say the way he wants to say it. Lord, we are in your presence, whether we're aware of it day and night, but we are most heartily aware of it right now. I ask, we ask that you speak to us, that you lead us and guide us by your spirit into all truth. In particular, I ask you to grant me utterance and boldness and clarity of thought. To say what you want said the way that you want it said. Use my tongue, use my mind, use my thoughts, my words, my emotions. Use my strong parts, my weak parts to convey your love, your affection, your revelation to your people. Grant us all a spirit of wisdom and understanding. We thank you, Lord, for what you start in us. We trust you to finish it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 13, towards the end of John, uh, when you get up that far, you all know that this is, no matter where you start reading that, it's the last week of his life. So he's only got hours to live at this point when he's making this part of his dissertation to him. He's only got day, a couple days. And he says something to them that uh, on the surface of it, we think we know, but in verse 34, he says a new commandment, John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Yes. Reading that, you can just gloss over it and say, well, here we go. This is something that we've all read a hundred times. We've gone over it many times and we think we know about this, but did you ever, I wonder, notice that he said, now I give you a new commandment? And did you ever wonder what the word now was there for? Because this is after the three and a half years that he's lived with them, and he's just on the cusp of leaving them for that change in life where he dies, pays the price, is resurrected, and comes back to reign on high. He's not taught them this, not in this way, in the three and a half years he spent with them. But he's given them a brand new commandment, but following on the heels of this commandment, the next couple of chapters, he begins to talk to them about the Holy Spirit. And I think it's a wonderful truth that he puts these two thoughts together because he's telling us, I'm going to give you a new commandment that you love one another, but you've spent the last three years with me learning that you can't love one another. And I'm going to give you the means in the presence of the Holy Spirit who's going to come live on the inside of you who will give you the capacity to love one another. The last three years have been about you learning that no matter what the law says, you can't keep the rules. But I'm going to give you something. In fact, I'm going to give you the same thing I've got. I'm going to give you the same capacity that I've got so you can love one another. Now, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Then he goes on and he says, 
By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. In fact, we'll read it all. We'll read it all in context here. He says in 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, but I left this phrase out, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. He's saying, I'm giving you the capacity to have love for one another, but it's not going to be just enough that you love each other. You're going to have to love them with the same love that I have for you. And that's the, that's the thought that ties it all together, is that it's not just enough for his disciples <coughs> to love the rest of the disciples, <coughs> excuse me, but they have to have the same kind of love that he had for the disciples. And that's the part you can't conjure up. That's the part that goes beyond being nice and polite. That's the part that humanly can't be attained without the power and without the help of God. He says, I give you this commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He says in John chapter 15, you don't need to turn there, but he says in John chapter 15, he says in verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So think with me for a minute. If he's telling them to love each other as I've loved you, and he says, just as the Father has loved me, that's how I've loved you. Isn't he telling them that they're supposed to love one another as the Father has loved Jesus? And as the Father has poured his love on Jesus and through Jesus? And what do you think would happen in our world if we ever took the effort and we ever waited and we prayed and we did what we knew and we suffered through our circumstances to make sure that we loved our brothers and sisters with the same kind of love that God had for the Lord Jesus Christ. I know what would happen. I don't know exactly what it would look like, but it would be a wonderful world. It would be a world of healing. It'd be a world of deliverance. It'd be a world of wholeness. It'd be a world of sacrifice. It would be a world of chaos. It would be a world of hurt. It would be a world of despair. This probably isn't the best time to say this, but reading these verses not long back, I thought, hmm, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But I thought, huh, he just didn't give him so he could walk around here and do nice stuff. The culmination of why he was here was to be here so he could die. I thought, does that mean that the love of God always compels somebody somewhere to die sometime? Thank God church is over. <laughs> because what that means for us is that if you say, I want to walk in the love of God, if you say, okay, I believe you, I, I am supposed to love my brothers and sisters like you love them, I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters like you love me, I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters like God loved you. And he sent you into all the world to meet their needs. So if I'm supposed to love Eric like the father loved the Lord Jesus, then that means I can walk past Eric all I want to and everything's cool. But if I see that Eric needs the love of God in his life and I am aware of that, I can't walk past him any longer. 
I have to stop and give him that love. The problem is, it might be the love that I was saving to give to my wife. It might be the $50 I was going to give to my wife. It might be the word of encouragement. It might be the investment of my soul that wears me out to love so many people at one time and then still have people that need to be loved. Because we know that we're not going to go hang on the cross, but this is our cross. This is where I die daily. I die daily as I walk through life trying to be the love of God on the earth like the Lord Jesus was the love of God on the earth. I die daily because sometimes I just don't want to give that love to anybody. It's not whether I give it to Gene or to Eric. I don't want to give it to anybody. I want to receive some love. I want to receive some affection. I don't have anything left to give away. One theory of church life is this. I've heard, I've heard preachers preach this and may have said something along the line a time or two myself. Church is like a hospital, and people come to church because they're hurt all week long to get help and to get health. And while this has an, uh, an undeniable truth to it, if we believe that's the main reason or the only reason we ever come to church, that all we ever do is stay hurt and broken. We come into church, we come into the presence of the brothers and the sisters, Hoping, wanting, needing something. We all have needs of some species, right? Now, don't make me ask questions. Everybody's got some kind of need, right? You got some kind of need, and when you came in the door, you put it aside for a little bit, hope that somehow, someway, someday, God will answer that need. It might be money. It might be love. It might be a friend. It might be marriage issues. It might be job issues. It might be kid issues. You all came in the door this morning with a life. And you parked that life at the door so you could come to church and kind of ignore it for a while and hope that somehow there's something that's said or done that permeates your heart and your mind and shows you some wisdom or God somehow he's as real to you as he is to somebody else. And he does something to help you so you can go out that door and make your life a better life. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you understand that you can't have your need tank filled all up before you begin to give out. Because you have to limp in that door as the walking wounded body of Christ. You have to limp in that door and you have to look for somebody. You have to have an eye open and a heart open for somebody who needs what you've got. Now, you might not have everything you need in life, but you've got something. And there is something that you've got to where when you encounter someone, it's going to be their need for you to give it to them. This is hard work. This, is, this means you have to have your heart and your mind turned on all the time. But this is the one thing that has the guarantee of the Word of God itself to convince the world that Jesus was alive, that he loved us, and that he loved them. Not our miracles, not our teaching, not our church building, not anything that we can say or do, not our prosperity, not our stable lives in the midst of adversity. 
Those, those issues all make points. They declare a certain part of God's glory. But the one inalienable truth, the one point that remains, that can't be dismantled, that can't be argued with, that no other religion on the globe can imitate. No other human being can imitate. No human being anywhere can imitate. No human being. Yeah, good morning. How are you doing? Really good. We're looking at John chapter 13. Nobody on the globe can imitate without the Spirit of God on the inside of them, without a fresh fullness, fullness, filling of the Holy Spirit, is that love that has to be poured out in disappointment, in, in weariness, in confusion. The whole time you're thinking about what your needs are, you come along and rise up in the power and the grace of God and reach out in the power and the grace of God and reach out and touch somebody else's life. Now, it's unfortunate because this is not optional. It's unfortunate because this isn't like for the mature. It's unfortunate because it isn't for the charismatics and the Pentecostals. It's unfortunate because it's, it, it's just for the word of faithers. You can't go to the Alliance Church and get away from this. You can't go to the Roman Catholic Church and get away from this. If you name the name of Christ, you have to have a willingness to have him stretch your capacity to love and pour your heart out and minister to people. Is he on the phone? Is he calling us? <laughs> Jesus on the line. Where's the song about that? <laughs> That's okay. Don't you worry about it. No, you don't need to. I'm just glad you came up and sat in the middle of the front row. I think that's a pretty big deal. There's something about the love of God that settles all issues. So he hadn't told them this before. They had to be a little bit... Uh, curious about it. He hadn't told him this, but he said, this is exactly what's going to convince the world that the Father sent me and that I'm loved by him if you have the same love one for another. Yes. Now, so far up to this point, he said things like this to him. He said, uh, he said in Matthew chapter, chapter 22, look at Matthew chapter 22, and we'll read this. We read John chapter 13, 34, if you want to write that down and look at it later. Matthew chapter 22. In verse number 36. Teacher, the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked him, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, which means it's equal to it or it's in the same category. This is Matthew chapter 12, and that was verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Much of the problem in life, of course, is that we do know, love our neighbor as ourself, and we've never encountered the love of God in a way that we've let it just keep working until it worked past all of our disappointments and all of our all of our fears, all of our regrets, all of our shame. We've never let that love work into our hearts. 
so deeply that it washed all the stains of sin and life out of us. And here's a hard saying. No matter how pretty of a face you can put on, no matter how you can stow your life away, if you walk around with a broken heart and a sense of rejection and dejection of spirit, a wounded spirit, ultimately brings infirmities, and nobody can bear those. Part of you can be a God-loving, powerful, prayerful, worshipful Christian, and part of you can still be tainted by the sins of your life or the sins of someone else's life that you've allowed to get so deep into your being you don't even recognize them for what they are, and they do have an effect. The first place they have an effect, of course, is in your own mind, in your own outlook, in your own health, ultimately, but they also have an effect on how you respond, how I respond to circumstances, and indeed how I respond to the people in my life, specifically to the believers. Because if I have not ever let God's love for me become so profoundly impacting that he's convinced me that even though I'm a jerk, yea, though I am, he still loves me and believes in me and ministers grace and affection and restoration to me, then when I turn around and look at you and you've disappointed me and you've let me down, if I haven't got the love of God for me in me, I'm not going to be able to pass it on and give it to you. So this is not a story today about me encouraging you to love people more, though you do have to know today before church is out that when you leave here beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm not telling you you got to love people more. I'm telling you that you have to be willing to have your love capacity increased. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you what to say to your husband when you get home, what to say to your wife, what to say to your boss or your employees. I'm not telling you those things. I don't know the answer to those things. That's the rub, is you have to walk out the door and you say, okay, I'm going to love my wife even when I don't like her. And right now, I have issues with my wife, and if I go play Mr. Nice Guy to my wife, she's going to say, oh, good, I'm glad you listened. Now, can I have some more, too? Or can we go do this the other way? Or it could be the other way around. You could have a wife that says, I've got to love my husband, which means I have to submit to him and do everything he tells me the way he tells me to do it. And if I just am nice one more time, love never fails. And if I'm just nice one more time, this is not about being nice. It's about being right. And it's not about being right, as Gene said, person to person. It's about being right in the rightness or the righteousness of God. To where you come along and you say, okay, I'm going to forgive you. I love you. But you still have obligations to me too as an employee, as a spouse, as a child, as a parent. And instead of sticking our head in the sand and pretending like everything's okay, we're going to get real close. And we're going to face this together. We're going to cry. We might lose our temper. We might cry some more. But we are, we are going to make sure that the love of God does not grow cold in our hearts or in our lives. This, this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's the keel that holds the whole ship together. That and the teaching on the cross 
go hand in hand because they promise you if you're going to walk in love, you are going to have to die to yourself. And it might not mean that you just die to yourself and give everybody else what they want. This is not rank human sentimentality. You can't find a place where the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus Christ, either one, God himself, ever felt sorry for people and let them off the hook. What he did was presented them with truth and acceptance that if they would accept that truth, that they would be restored and made every bit whole. You know, there's all sorts of directions we could go, and none of them promised to make the day any happier. So let's just look over in Matthew <laughs> chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, verse number 3, it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. So this is a disciple teaching for private disciples. This is not for the world. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the close of the age. So there's three things there. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. So he said, what's the sign of the times? And he said, see that no one leads you astray. So I would say that the first sign of the times about the end of the days was that there'd be a lot of people that were going astray. And you know, what I'd really like to say to him is, how about if you see to it that no one leads me astray? Because how would I know if I was being led astray? But he didn't. He said, it's not my job to keep you from going astray. It's not my authority. It's not my place. He said, you have to see to it. You have to see to it that no one leads you astray. Then he begins to expound on the thought. He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And obviously, if they're to be believed, they have to have some kind of an anointing on their life, right? Or you wouldn't believe them. He says, he's talking to the disciples who've watched the anointing, who've watched him. He's saying, many will come saying, I am the Christ. He said, but don't believe them. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So he's saying... There's a lead up to this, and there's a lot of pressure in the world. But something apparently happens between verse 8 and verse 9 because it says then. That's the first word in my Bible, and I think it is in most of them. It says the word then. So, so something's happened. Then it says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then, after that then, Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Now, I've got several translations at home. I wouldn't want to make doctrine out of this, but there's more than just a few, and there's not French translations either, where it says that many will fall away. It says the most will fall away. The most will fall away. 
You know, people fall away because of trouble. If you stop and look at this, and this is, this is how the story develops here. Pressure comes from the outside. Pressure comes from the outside. People don't like Christians. Pressure comes from the outside. Uh, people, people don't like it because we have values about marriage, about family, a definition of about marriage and about family. So pressure comes from the outside. Pressure comes from the outside. And then and they just keep pushing and they keep squeezing about pressure comes about money. And we say, instead of saving your money, you're supposed to give your money. Pressure comes about so many places in so many ways. Pressure comes from the government to tell you what a family is supposed to look like. Right? So we're not far. We're not far in the day that we live in from some Christian spanking their child, according to the Bible, and some other Christian in church hearing or seeing it, and for whatever reason being in disagreement with it. Maybe because social services is camped on their door, and they're in trouble for what they think is less. And so they began to say, well, I'm not the only person that does this. Pastor Jonathan does it too. And then everybody says, what did you rat Pastor Jonathan out for? Now look what you've done. What happens is the pressure from the outside is always endeavoring to get inside the body. Jesus just didn't say, I want you to love one another because I like nice, happy people. He said, I'm telling you, this is the big deal because it's the only thing that can hold you together as a body. Without that love, we are all nothing more than individual parts disassembled. We are disconnected from each other, and the tendency is to remain disconnected. The tendency is to be hurt, to be disappointed, and to pull back. We're going to read the verse in a minute, but later on it says, and the love of many will grow cold. It didn't say it just stopped. It grew cold. It didn't say it was cold. It said it grew cold, which means it grew weaker and weaker and weaker. So after a while, the people that we go to church with, the other saints in town, the saints that we know around the globe, were nothing more than just what anybody else would be. They were acquaintances. And it's a wonderful thing. I know, I don't know anybody that's got to travel much has realized this as, as a believer. But you can go around the globe. You can meet people in different countries that, no speaking of English. And when you sit down and talk to them with the six words that you share in common, you recognize yourself in them. You recognize that part of you that has been touched by God just exactly, just like you and that same person looking back through their eyes. Because they are your family. They are your brother and sister. It's the real deal. They can be rich. They can be pretty. They can be ugly. They can be male, female, old or young. Makes no difference. You see a different version of you looking back at you because of the same spirit that came to live in you is alive and well on the inside of them. Do you know what? That is, that is of enormous wealth. That is, that is an enormous treasure. But it's not just a treasure for our enjoyment. It's part of his global plan to take over the world. It's him expressing his personality. It's him expressing his will. It's him being a body and not just living in or through one individual, one church, one family, one organization, one doctrinal perspective. It's him 
living out the fullness of his life that none of us could ever hope to contain all by ourselves. So he's saying, you know, there's a reason the pressure comes. The pressure comes to divide you because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Not where two or three are, not where there are two or three Christians in a town, but where two or three are gathered, hold my hand, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. Because there's something about that connection that allows more revelation, it allows more power, it allows more, it allows more of God to invade the environment, invade the scene. Now, nobody likes individuality anymore than I do. Everybody's got a personality. Everybody's got their own uniqueness, and it should be celebrated and appreciated. Nobody's probably too much more of an introvert than I would be, though you might not think it. But I can't contain God by myself, nor can you. So I can't let my natural tendencies just to tune people out or disregard other people's feelings or needs or thoughts, rule my life to the point that I willingly or knowingly break a connection that I'm supposed to have. He says, we're not quite down that far yet there, I don't think. He says, verse 10 again, and then many will fall away and betray one another. I missed verse 9. I want to read that again. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And in that environment, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, look what he said. There's the word astray right there in the last part of verse 11 in my translation. That's the first thing he said to them, was see to it that you don't get led astray. So what he's just told them in that paragraph was what, would, what it would look like to be led astray. What it looks like to be led astray is to let the pressure on the outside get on the inside and begin to separate you from people because he says you're going to be hated and you're going to be betray one another and you're going to fall away. That's what it looks like to be led astray. That's what happens when you get wheedled out of church. That's what happens when relationships break down. That's what happens, and in the face of all betrayal, in the face of all hatred, what I'm telling you today is there is a power that enables us to love in the face of all hatred. There is a power, there is a power that enables us to love in the face of all betrayal. You know, everybody has to go through the same experience as the Lord Jesus did, up to and including even the cross, except that we die we died not for the salvation of the world, but we die to ourselves a little more intimately and privately, usually. But you do die. You do die that the will of God may come forth. You do yield. You do have to let God's will prevail. And in the face of that betrayal, that disappointment, that rejection, the final test that Jesus took was how he handled the betrayal of Judas. And in every one of your lives, you should know before you get your diploma, why am I preaching this? Before you get your diploma, 
before you get your diploma, before Jesus says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, you are going to face an unreasonable betrayal from somebody close to you that should have known better. Or it wouldn't be a betrayal. It's got to be somebody close to you and somebody that knows better. And you have to make a choice right there. You say, I'm going to divorce them. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to pay to have somebody else kill them because that's not really sinful. I'm going to go to a different church. I'm going to, I'm going to do bad things. I'm going to ask God to kill them. I'm going to ask God to let the devil kill them. You've never done these things. I'm going to ask God to cause them to lose their job. I would never do that, but I'm still happy that they lost their job. I have a bad heart, okay? <laughs> You're going to have to make a choice about whether you forgive, whether, whether you die. And you can say, you know, nobody can make me die. And you are exactly right. But this, here, here's the hell of it. And this is the hell of it. You can circle back around. You can come right to that edge and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Nobody can make me and nobody knows about it. You'll turn around and walk about five steps this way. There'll be another one right there. You can walk five steps this way. And there'll be another one right here. You think, I know some of the worst people on the planet. Man, this thing's just <laughs> following me around. He said, you know, I didn't make these people bad. I didn't, I didn't make anybody bad. This is not my fault. You said you wanted to be a Christian. You said you wanted to be like me. We sang it a while ago. I cringed. You said you want to be like me. You said what you want to do is be my expression of love like the Father was to Jesus, like Jesus was to his disciples, how they were supposed to be to each other. You said, I'm all in for that. So he said, you have to, you have to pass this. You have to do this. You have to do this or you're going to be miserable all of your life. You have to step over it so that it can no longer touch you. And the point's not to hurt you. The point's to show you that you really can step out on the edge and walk on the air. The point is to show you that you don't have to be controlled by anybody else. Held down, held back by who anybody else is or who anybody else isn't. That you have the power to maintain your integrity. You have the strength to be his representative here on this earth. And you are proving yourself trustworthy because at that point right there, just as it was in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing to withhold the power of God from absolutely inundating you, flooding all over you so you can rise up and walk into everything you have to walk into with the same authority, with the same strength, with the same power that Jesus himself had. Why? Because you have proven yourself free of being controlled by your own will and by your own wishes. And I don't mind being free of being controlled of my own will and my own wishes as long as it's the will of my own wishes that I want to be controlled by. But I have other things that I don't necessarily want to surrender. Other ideas, other beliefs, other values. So he says, yes, I know about those things. Jesus looking at David, 
when David kept sniveling and say, I've done all that since I was a baby Christian. What, what really must I do to be saved? He looks me up and down and says, beholding me and loving me, you lack one thing. No, no, no. You must have understood. I wasn't having a conversation with you about what I lacked. You lack one thing. You're too rich in your own mind. How you feel about yourself and your money. I see that you like this money too much. I'm not going to give you a caution that says, now, don't, don't like that money that much. That's not good for you. He says, here's what will really be good for you. Here's what will really help you. Give it all away. Don't give it to me. I don't want it. Give it to the poor, and you come follow me. Well, who wouldn't go away sad at that? <laughs> Do you think he still ever lost the anointing to find the one thing you lack? <laughs> you know, it's a two-edged two sword. When we go into the presence of the Lord, we bask in his glory, but he's not blind. He's looking. He's looking at what's really going on in there. And when we say and when we live a life that says, I want to do right, I want to be what you want me to be, but we're not letting it change who we are, he says, you got to deal with this. you got to deal with this or you can stay just like you are, but if you don't deal with this, this will come back and deal with you next Thursday. This will come back and deal with you the Thursday after that. Just to confuse you, it'll be in there the Tuesday after that. This will follow you around all of your life until you are so burdened with it that you walk through life and say, oh, never, God never really helped me do anything. But he does. He didn't give him this promise out of the clear air. He gave him this promise on the cusp of his leaving and the promise of the Holy Spirit to come take his place. He said, I'm going to give you guys something that you have to do that you can't do. I'm going to tell you that you have to be just like me. You have to love. You have to love each other like I loved you. And you have to remember that the Father loved me in such a way that I'm loving you like that. You have to love each other like the Father loved me. You have to love each other like the Father loved me. The question is no longer... Do unto others as you wish they would do unto you. The question is now, do unto others as the Father has done unto you. Do unto others as you wish the Father would do unto you. It's not do unto others like you want it back. It's do unto others like God did it for you. Do unto others like God did for the Lord Jesus. We'll finish this and we'll be done. He says... And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And, many, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, and believe it or not, I've said all this to get to verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now notice the first word in virtually any translation you got. It's some kind of a conjunction like but. So it links the thought. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What do you have to endure? You have to endure hatred. You have to endure betrayal. You have to endure people. Church would be okay if you guys weren't all here today. 
You're probably thinking, church would be okay if you weren't here today. <laughs> you have to endure people. Their humanity. And you know what? Not just endure them with your love growing cold because you've hurt my feelings one time too many. I'll still go to the same church with you. I'll still go to the same church with you, but I'm not going to open my heart to you anymore. Because a cold heart is a disengaged heart. It's not the same thing as a bad heart. A cold heart just says, I don't have any affection for you. I don't have any sympathy for you. And, and you know what? There's not a church on the globe that don't have people with a cold heart towards somebody else in the church in it or a cold heart towards somebody else in another church somewhere. People are people all over the planet. We get hurt. When we get hurt, what do we do? We pull back. But that's the beginnings of a cold heart. He says, we have a cold heart. I, my, my, sure, my heart's cold towards you. My heart is cold towards my wife. Of course my heart is cold towards my wife. Of course it is. Jesus knows it is. Jesus is happy that it is because Jesus knows my wife has been bad to me. <laughs> Jesus knows my wife is wrong and that she has hurt my feelings. She's disappointed me. And until she apologizes, I will withhold my heart from her. That is her punishment. Why are you looking at me like this? <laughs> that is her punishment for not being everything I thought she should be. And since I'm saved, of course, everything I, everything I think comes right from the throne of God. So Jesus himself is disappointed in Jean. This is not true. One day, I was thinking about this last week. I don't know what made me think about it. But one day, one day, uh, some years back, there was somebody who really did give me a bad time. I forgot who they were. I forgot what the bad time was. I just remember the event. They gave me a really bad time. And I remember thinking, you're going to get in trouble from the Lord if you don't stop this. I know you are. Because <laughs> I, know, I know I would get in trouble from the Lord. And then some, some season later, uh, you know, six months or a year, it's all gone, it's all forgotten about. <laughs> some wonderful thing happens to this guy. And I thought, what? <laughs> some wonderful thing happens. Somebody gave him a Mercedes Benz. What? What are you saying? <laughs> What's going on here? And all of a sudden, it was like Jesus was standing beside me. And he looked at me with surprise and said, what? You didn't think I was mad at him too, did you? <laughs> Well, of course I lied. And I said, no, of course I didn't think you were. But I did lie. It was on the record. No, of course. Why would you be mad at him? Why would you be mad at him? I heard myself saying, why would you be mad at him? He went on. He said, you know, your issues are your issues. What you got going on with people is between you and them. It's not, that's not my fault. That's not my business. They're, in my mind, he said, that guy was a loyal, faithful servant to me. He did exactly what I asked him to do, and I rewarded him for his obedience. I said, well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. 
I'm going to be nicer. You can't close your heart off to anybody. And it's not enough to keep your heart open when you're happy. The test is in keeping your heart open when you're not getting your way, when you're misunderstood. He says, but the one who endures, so what do they have to endure? They have to endure all those things he listed there. And what proves the endurance? Well, the coal love, the coal love says that it, well, coal love can't be saved. He said, he that endures to the end will be saved. So if you don't endure, you won't be saved. So the cold love can't be saved. But on the other hand, the good news is, is if you're enduring, if you're, if you're long-suffering with those in your midst, those in your life, even though your flesh don't always feel like it, even though your mind doesn't always agree with it, if you're enduring, you're in the process of being saved. You're being changed. You're being shaped. You're learning what it means to love sacrificially. And in the presence of that kind of sacrificial love, in the midst of that sacrificial love, when it's in a church, when it's in a family, a home, a city, salvation runs rampant. It absolutely breaks out because it is not just the love of God that compels it. It's not just the love of God that builds the platform for it to exist. It's the love of God that shows we are men and women of God capable of handling His authority, handling His word, handling His power. It's a love that brings salvation to us as individuals, families, bodies, cities and entire regions. And ultimately, it will be the love that brings salvation to the nation, to the nations of the world. But it is hard work. It is so hard of a job that you cannot, again, do it by yourself. But isn't it a wonderful verse in Romans chapter 5 that says that the love of God is shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost. Firstly, when that starts off, that's not a love that we have for God. Our love for God never exceeds our love for each other. Our love for God can never exceed our love for each other. That verse we read out of Matthew chapter 22 said the second is like it, the second is equal to it. Our love for God is irrevocably tied to our love for each other. And if we violate our love towards each other, it violates our love towards God because 1 John chapter 4 says, how can you say that you love God whom you've never seen if you'd love not your brother whom you have seen. You know how to make yourself have a great praise and worship service? How to really be rich in the love of God? How to really sense Him when He's there? Is to walk through your week before you get to that praise and worship service, pouring your heart out in love towards people that you don't necessarily in your own flesh love. Be loving to the people that you encounter. Connect with them in a way that brings salvation to them even when it has a cost for you to do so. Because in that, you are being like God himself. In that, you are imitating the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he poured out the Father's love on his disciples, when he commanded them to love each other. You can't do it in your own strength, but the good news is there is a free gift for all of us. In the person, in the presence 
of the Holy Spirit of God to fill our heart and absolutely baptize us in the love of God that he has for us as it pours through us towards our brothers and sisters and ultimately responds back up to his throne in heaven. Stand up with me if you would. Come on, say something, sweetie. Come on. Absolutely. Over in the book of Jude in, in verse, um, let's start with verse 18. In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause divisions. So we know right off the bat that when we cause divisions, we're following our own ungodly passions. So when we come to a place where we're offended or we're hurt or we've suffered betrayal or we're just not wanting to forgive, we need to understand we are following our own ungodly, everybody say ungodly, ungodly, ungodly passions. This this is me walking after my natural human emotions, and this will never, ever take me to a place of abundant life in God. And God is always working in us, isn't he, so that we will move to a place of life. It's those places of choice that I make after my flesh that lead me away from God and don't bring fulfillment, don't bring joy, don't bring life, but it's when I find that place of submission to him your will be done. Here's where I'm dying. I'm dying to the thing Jeannie wants to do. And I'm going to stay at this place until I am empowered by the Holy Spirit to rise up in his strength and ability so that I can take that step towards you and stay connected with you. There is such great power in absolutely staying connected to each other by the Spirit of God, that God is able to supernaturally work in the midst where he could not work before. And it's as we stay, uh, it's as we stay united to him, right? It's as we stay absolutely connected to him. He's the vine, we're the branches apart from him. You see, we try to do all this stuff apart from him, in my own strength, in my own power, in my own sufficiency. But when I come to a place where I say, God, they've really hurt my feelings. And what I would like to do right now in the natural is withdraw from them. But God, I know your heart and your desire is for me to stay connected connected and allow the love of God to rise up on the inside of me. I choose not to be ungodly in my life. So they follow their own ungodly passions. They cause divisions. They're worldly people devoid of the spirit. So I need to know when I step over here and follow after my own way, I have not the spirit of God working and leading me in that situation. I can find other people that could counsel me and say, here's what I think you need to do. You need to do such and such and so and so and have it your way, you know, but God's never going to come along and endorse my choices of separation from a divine connection that he's established for me. He wants me to remain vitally connected to him and to the body. And look what he says. He says, build yourselves up. Verse 20, but you, but you, beloved, but you, Jeannie, build yourself up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself. 
Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in that place of absolutely rooted and grounded in the love of God. God, I love you. You love me. Your love is going to flow through me in power and demonstration. And by the grace of God, I'm going to stay connected and allow the love of God to overcome every sense of discouragement and fear and betrayal. Because you know what really causes us to withdraw is that fear, right? And doesn't the Bible say perfect love? Perfect love cast out fear that fear has torment it's so consumed with itself and how it's going to be affected but when I come into that place of being full of the power of almighty God it flows from me in a place of absolute unity and an abundance of love and God says and Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. If you would ever, ever choose to allow me, if you would ever choose to allow me, I stand by ready. I stand by ready at a moment's notice. I stand by ready in the middle of the night. I stand by ready in the dark. I stand by ready in the hard. I stand by ready in the cold. I stand by ready to fill you up, to fill you up with my spirit that would so wash the stain of pain and rejection and disappointment and despair out of the very fibers of your spirit, out of the very fiber of your being, so that your soul, so that your life, so that your words, so that your mind, so that your brain was no longer tainted by what was or by what wasn't but fill you up with a love that allows you to know the value of the high calling that I've placed upon you as you share in my life. To allow you to see the value, the sheer value of those I've placed around you whom you may see and know after the flesh, but I'd admonish you not to know any man after the flesh, but to see and seek the eternity that lives in their own heart, that lives in their own life, that place that lives in them where I dwell, so that you'd be able, regardless of whether they responded poorly or well, whether they responded after my heart or after theirs or someone else's, you would still have a love, a love that went beyond natural understanding, a love that went beyond a natural strength, yeah. but a love that allowed you to Jesus. embrace, Jesus. not pull away, <laughs> not resist, not hold back. I love you, Gene. I'm sorry about what I said this morning. Honey. <laughs> that would allow you to pull away and hold back Jesus, Jesus. from the deepest work that I could ever Jesus. effect in your being, Jesus. allowing myself to be at mm. home mm. and come and reside Jesus. and abide in fullness of Jesus, glory Jesus. and power and demonstration in you and in your life Hallelujah. for as long as you may live. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Hallelujah. I didn't really say anything bad this morning. Well, if I did, I didn't know it. You didn't <laughs> no, say okay. anything bad this morning. Thank Jesus. you, Father. 
Jesus. Jesus, fill our hearts, yes, fill our lives. Yes, yes, yes. Fill our minds. Thank you, Father. With your presence, wash oh, us. Oh, God. Wash oh, us, God. renew us. Yes, Father. By your precious that we may spirit live today. the redeemed life, the filled life. By your spirit. You've called us to. By your spirit. In Jesus' name. Oh, God. Thank you. Thank Amen. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Listen, you. Listen, I do have one thing to do here. Uh, Jesus. And Jesus, I have to help me say this well. I know, as you all would know if you thought about it, that there are people in our midst, it may be one of us, it may be all of us, who have in fact trained our brains, trained our lives to withdraw at the first sign of rejection, first sign of disappointment. It is a hurdle, loved ones, that you have to get beyond. But in some cases, I would suppose someone could just make a decision and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. In fact, at some point, you do have to make a decision and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I, it might start slowly. It might start by you refusing to leave the room when you have an argument. It might mean that you just stay in the game. Uh, it, might, it might go through stages to where you just, you know, sometimes you talk up to a certain point and there's nothing left to be said. Uh, and so nobody says anything for two or three days. And some people tell me. But not yours, I'm sure. Uh, it might go through phases and stages where one day you just say, we're going to change the subject. It, it might take you a while to get past it to where you're not afraid to be rejected. Because that's really what it all is. But then there are others of us who have strongholds that, because we've thought of it this way for so long, so many years, in some cases, so many decades, that we don't even see ourselves. We're blind to seeing ourselves, how we put up walls to shut other people out. Nobody said it better than Joyce Meyer. The wall you put up to keep others out keeps you in. Something very close to that, she said. The love of God's wanting to break out in your midst. But it's got to break out inside of you, and it's got to be so bold, it's got to be so strong, it's got to be so rich that it does not cry and despair in the face of adversity. It does not get its feelings hurt. It does not sulk and pout and cry like a child when it's got reason to do so. It is like the love of Christ. It is robust. It is strong. It is absolutely indestructible. So in the face of hatred, the face of betrayal, it washes feet. In the face of rejection, it tells the truth. In the face of despair, it just stays steady because it knows that it's not, not a human condition. It is a grace, it is a power, it is the strength that comes from God on the inside. It's a barrier to break through. For some of us, it might be, it might be a stronghold that we have to break through. A retraining might be in order. other things. Before we go, and I won't take much more time, we'll turn the meeting over to John. We'll see how we do this, but if you need prayer to be set free from that spirit of rejection 
from your own disappointments, from your own despair, that entitles you in your mind to no longer love when you're faced with it again, I want to pray with you. Father, we thank you for, if you do, if you do, please come on up. We thank you for your deliverance. We thank you for taking us across rickety old bridges that seem like they're going to collapse when we put our weight on them. We thank you, Lord, that you heal the brokenhearted, that you heal the brokenhearted, that you deliver us by your power, by your grace. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that as we, as we pray, as we pray, the spirit of rejection and despair is broken off and that absolute the cap is removed so that the love of God can flow deep into our hearts, into our lives, into these individuals here right now. I say that your love will penetrate beyond their barriers of resistance and fill their hearts and their minds up with the love that you have for them, that they may pour it out boldly and freely without fear, without restraint, without hindrance to those you've placed into their lives. For this, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Gene, you should come pray for me. John, you want to pray with me? Lead us in a worship song, sweetheart. Lead us in a worship song. Let's all worship the Lord for a minute. Thank you, Lord. You fill us up. of these things that you loved us enough to speak to us this morning are impossible by ourselves, but they all things are possible through you and with you. Lord, we understand that you haven't simply come to teach us to love, but rather to love through us, to, to impart a love that we didn't have before. And out of that innermost will flow rivers of living water. Out of the innermost will flow life. Lord, we commit to you our hearts and our lives. Yes, Father. We lay our will down. We, as Jesus did, we empty ourselves so that you would exalt us and give us a name. The things we heard this morning are best when self-applied. It's a big mistake for you to hear these things and think of all the people that need to hear this and forget yourself. In fact, it's probably best not to think of anyone else today and just you. I was feeding my son the other day and I was teaching him to use the utensil and he didn't want to eat, so he acted like he was being very nice and trying to give me the food. And I said, nice try. This is for you. I think in a message like this, God loved you enough to speak to you today. Sometimes you hear those things and you go, oh, you know who needs to hear that? And the answer is, I need to hear that. And I want to remind you what he said and um, came to in several points. God is not expecting you to tape a bunch of fruit to a tree and call it the fruit of the Spirit. As he said at the beginning, it's a new commandment that came with the giving of the Holy Spirit. So everything that you need to do, this love is an impossible love. 
in the flesh, but completely possible through the Spirit of God, which he has given us freely. Drink all of it. And as you pour out, you yourself will be filled. Let's lay our lives down. Greater love has no man than this, but that he lay his life down for a friend. Thank God he laid his life down for us. The scripture says that he died for all, that we who live might no longer live for ourselves. And the beauty of that is you don't have to live for yourself anymore. Thank God. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that the seeds you've planted will grow into beautiful things. That in the cracked ground that was formerly our soul and our heart, you've caused it to be like the Garden of Eden. You've caused things to spring up again. You've caused life to come again. Even for those that had that were prayed over at the front here, Lord, that, that those cracked and those dry places are becoming a garden again. That life is springing up. Life that will nourish others. Life will that nourish ourselves. Life that will reproduce in others. We thank you for it, Lord, and we refuse to give the enemy a foothold, but we fully give you all that you need. Take all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, praise God. Aren't you glad that God sent us Brother Dave and Sister Jean this morning? Amen. Praise God. They're going to be staying with us. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if Sister Jean's going to be coming up. She might be resting up for the conference, but I know Brother David's going with me this this evening to Loon Lake, and we're going to just see what God does in Loon Lake. It's going to be awesome. But they'll be staying through the week uh, for the minister's conference that starts tomorrow night. And so for all of you that are volunteering, I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, we're so thankful. And we know that the seeds that you sow will come back in a harvest, and we believe that. We're thankful for you. We love you. God bless you. Go out into the mission field of the world and watch the word come alive. All right? We love you.